0: I want you to imagine uh, that you're coming to America for the the very first time. You grew up in another country. Uh, You grew up without a television. You grew up without the Internet. And for some reason, you're going to get to meet the President of the United States. Uh, You've never seen him. You've heard people talk about him. You know what his name is. but That's all you know. And before you're asked to come, someone says, Look, I want you to draw a picture of what you think the President of the United States looks like. And I want you to write a paragraph paragraph describing what you think he's like. And so you do this and then you go and you meet the president and you you spend the day with him and you get to know him. And so my question is at the end of the day, would you be willing to redo your drawing of what you thought he was gonna be like? Would you be willing to revise your paragraph after you'd actually spent time with him? Or or put put it another way, similar situation. Let's say you grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and you had never seen the mountains. And somebody said, look, I'm going to take you to Asheville, I'm going to show you the mountains, but before you go, I want you to draw a picture of the mountains, and and then we're going to go. And so you go, and you see what mountains are actually like. Would you be willing to revise your drawing of mountains to, to make it more in line with what mountains actually look like? Where am I going with this? Um, I'd, I'd hazard to guess that n- nobody in this room has ever seen God. If you have it? I'd like to talk to you later. But I, I, I'd, I'd hazard to guess that no one in this room has actually seen God. But we all have ideas of what God is like. And so my question this morning is, if, if you saw God, if you met God, if God walked into the room, would you be willing to change your drawing? Would you be willing to revise what you had always thought about God and bring it into line with who He actually is? Um, I read this this quote, this read from a Article I was reading. It says the philosopher Ludwig Fairbaugh, perhaps the ablest critic of Christianity, charged that we view God through the eyes of our tribe, our culture and tradition, and our personal wants and needs. So that rather than seeing the true God, we constantly remake God according to our image. God becomes the personal projection of our id in the sky, believing what we believe, blessing those causes we support, cursing those we curse, abiding the contours of our independently achieved ideology. Uh, Karl Barth found his critique sound. Sinful as we are, when Christians speak of God, Bart concurred, we're most often speaking of ourselves in a loud voice. So his criticism of Christians is, look, you guys are just making God into your own image. He always seems to like what you like. He wants what you want. He always seems to support the same causes that you support. Um, But interestingly this making of God into our own image I think is actually at the root of what is forbidden by God. What is actually forbidden in the second commandment. The second commandment is telling us that we have to bring our imagination of of what we think God is like in line with what He actually is like. We have to bring our ideas about how He wants to be worshipped in line with how He actually wants to be worshipped. We have to bring our ideas about how we can approach God in line with how He actually wants to be approached. We don't just get to decide what God is like. And so if we have preconceived notions about what God is like, the second commandment is calling us to bring those in line with the way He reveals Himself. And so the question this morning for us is, are you and I willing to do that? Are we willing to bring the way we like to think about God in line with how He actually reveals Himself to be? So that's, that's our thing to think about this morning. Let's read, uh, first of all, from Exodus chapter 20, and then from Deuteronomy 4 and Colossians 1. You shall not make for yourself a carved image... Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth." For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, help us as um, we approach a commandment that that seems a little foreign to our ears. Uh, I pray that you would help us to understand it and understand what it has to do uh, with our lives and to live in in accordance with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things here. I want to look at what is commanded in the second commandment. And we're going to talk about why it's commanded. And then we're going to think a little bit about how we might apply this today. Because it does sound a, a little weird to us in some way. So the, the what, um, the why, and the how. What is God commanding in the second commandment? Alright. The, the first thing God is commanding in the second commandment is... You are not to try to represent me by making an image of me. Now, the Deuteronomy text says that, you know, on the day that I spoke to you, you didn't see any form. You don't have anything to go by. And so, you don't I'm not giving you license to use your imagination and try to come up with whatever you want to come up. Don't try to make an image to represent the invisible God. And then secondly says, and don't make these images and then bow down to them and worship them. Uh, These are things that the nations surrounding the Israelites were known to do. Uh, They would make idols carved out of wood and stone and clay and whatever and they would use them to represent their gods and they would use them to enable their worship of their gods. And God says, "You're, you're not supposed to be like them. You can't do the things that they do. Now, you might say when you first hear this, you're like, well, this I, I, this, I think it's just saying the same thing the first commandment said right it sounds like it's just saying you're not to have any idols and there is a lot of overlap there's so much overlap in fact that Roman Catholics and Lutherans actually combine the first two commandments into one commandment and then they split the tenth commandment into two commandments so that they still have ten I don't know, I don't know if you knew that or not because there, there, is a, there is a lot of overlap between these first two commandments so What's the difference here? What's unique about this second commandment? I think what's unique is this. The first commandment is about who or what you worship. The second commandment is more about how you worship and how you envision the one true God. How you think about God. How you worship God. Um, You see this in a couple places in the Old Testament. One of them is in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32... Moses has been up on the mountain with God for a long time. And the people are down at the base of the mountain and they're getting impatient about this. And finally they say to Aaron, I don't know when he's coming back. I don't know if he's coming back. Why don't you make some gods for us to lead us so we can keep going on our journey? And so this is where Aaron collects all the gold and he makes the golden calf. And he says to the people, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then he builds an altar in front of the golden calf. And he says, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. Now, I think it's important to hear him say that because he's not saying, all right, we're done with this God that Moses worships and we're going to worship Baal like everybody else around here. No, he's saying, he's saying we're worshiping Yahweh, but we're going to do it by means of this golden calf that I have just built here for you. And God is saying, that's what I don't want you to do. You're you're not to make an image to try to represent me with that image. Later in the Old Testament, Jeroboam does the same thing in 1 Kings. The kingdom has split into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jeroboam is in the northern kingdom and he doesn't want everybody going down south and getting corrupted down there on their way to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So he's got to build his own separate worship center and what he puts in his worship center are two golden calves. And he says to the people of of Israel, Hear your gods, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And again, God in the second commandment is saying, You can't do that. We're not permitted to try to make the invisible God visible and then to try to use this image that we've created in order to help us somehow worship God. All right, so that's the the what. Now, why? Why? Why was this commanded? Let me, let me list several things for you to think about. You might jot these down and you can come back to them later today. Uh, but number one, why does this matter? God is not a created thing. God is not a created thing. When you make an image of God, you are identifying God with a created thing. And, and what will happen is you start to associate Him with that created thing. And in doing this, the Israelites were basically taking God and putting Him on the same level as all the gods of the surrounding nations. But God is saying, I'm not a created thing. Secondly, and this is related, God is a living God. God is a personal God. If you read through the Old Testament, one of the common critiques of idolatry is this. Uh, The Bible says, look, you're, you're worshiping things that can't see or hear or taste or smell. talk. You're you're worshiping impersonal things. You're worshiping dead things. You're worshiping blocks of silver and gold and clay and and wood and whatever they made them out of them. And then the Bible goes on and it says and you'll become like the things you worship. You'll become like these dead impersonal things that you worship. Now, think about that in modern terms for a second. Think of how bowing before money or sex or power or approval shapes who we are it's inescapable inescapable that we become like the things we worship if you've ever heard some of the stories about Hugh Hefner the founder of Playboy and how over the course of his life he just became more and more sexually deviant he he became like this thing that he worshiped and so worshiping idols kills us because we're worshiping dead things. Worshiping the true God brings us life because we're worshiping the living God. And so we're not to create these image of, images of God because they misrepresent Him. He is not a created thing. He is not a dead thing. He is a living God and shouldn't be represented with a dead block of wood. Now, a third reason why this matters. Images obscure the majesty of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, a little bit earlier in that text, reads this, and, and just to give you an, an image of the majesty of God that's God spoken to us. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. So there's no image of God and yet He's not made Himself visible here. They just hear His voice and yet His majesty is clearly communicated to the people. And idols obscure that. Um, Isaiah mocks image makers for trying to somehow capture the majesty of God. He says in chapter 40, To whom will you compare God? What image will you compare Him to? And then in chapter 41, he makes fun of them because they make idols, and then they have to nail them down to keep them from falling over in the wind. It's like, this is silly. And, and you're worshiping these things. So think about the Grand Canyon, all right? And think about a professional photographer who comes and takes a picture of the Grand Canyon with, like, whatever most expensive camera there is. And then think about taking a picture of the Grand Canyon with the latest smartphone, and then think about taking a picture of the grand canyon with a smartphone from like five years ago and then think about taking a picture of the grand canyon with a flip phone all right and you guys know if you ever taking a picture with a flip phone like civil war pictures are better than flip phone <laughs> pictures right like they're horrible um the the flip phone picture obscures the majesty of the grand canyon And I think what's being said here is images of God obscure, the. they're like flip phone pictures of the Grand Canyon. They obscure the majesty of God. They don't accurately represent who He is. They don't do Him justice. In fact, they do Him a great injustice. Uh, Fourthly, uh, images of God misunderstand His freedom. Uh, And so if I was a pagan worshiper, what I would do is I would, I would take my idol and I would set it down and then I would do whatever ritual I was supposed to do in front of it to get the gods to do what I wanted them to do. Uh, and so one, one commentator said, to, to make images of God, they said images are an attempt to walk God around on a leash. Right? They're, they're a way, they're means that I can feel like I can somehow manipulate and control God. Uh, Another one described them as as like a transformer and and not comic book transformers. Uh, But images are like, like an electrical transformer. It makes the voltage, it makes the electricity a little more controllable. But that misrepresents God. God is not controllable by us. We can't say a prayer a certain number of times or in a certain place or at a certain time of day and think that somehow... Oh, now God is obligated to do what I want Him to do because I have I have gone through the religious motions. Uh, images misunderstand God's freedom, make us feel like we can control Him. Uh, fifthly, God is a jealous God. Now we we saw this uh, in the text, and the the picture here is of a husband who is jealous for his bride, and so Israel is being called here not to be unfaithful to God who is her husband. And she's being told if she is unfaithful that that's going to have consequences not just in her generation but in the generations to come as well. Now, sometimes people read this and they're like, okay, that's a little scary and how does that fit like with Ezekiel where Ezekiel says pretty plainly "The son, the, the, one, the soul who sins is the one who's going to die. And I think the way to understand this is when you read texts like Ezekiel, and you understand they're dealing more with the, with the Israelite legal system. And they're basically saying, if, if you do the crime, you're going to have to do the time. Like, if, if, if I, if I uh, rob a bank, I'm going to get thrown in jail for it, not will. Okay, that's not going to happen. But at the same time, if I make a habit of robbing banks, that's going to have an impact in the lives of my children, which I think what is what the Exodus passage and the commandment is actually getting at. If, if you're unfaithful to the Lord and if you turn away toward idols, that's going to have an impact in the life of your children. On the other hand, if you are faithful to the Lord, then even more so, that's going to have an impact in the life of your children. Now, it's not this automatic thing. There's not like steps X, Y, and Z that if I do these things, then my children automatically aren't going to be Christians or A, B, and C, and they automatically are going to be Christians. It's not this automatic thing. The children of believers certainly do at times turn away from the Lord. The children of unbelievers do at times come to know the Lord. But what this is telling us is that the things we worship as parents inescapably shape our children's lives. That they will have an impact on the lives of our children. Uh, A silly example I have three children who are all Auburn fans. One of them was at the game yesterday because she goes to school there, the other two were watching the game on TV. I don't know how in the world that happened. you know, it just, we live in South Carolina and somehow they're pulling from this team from another state. No, it's because I, I'm an Auburn fan and my wife is, and it inescapably had an influence on them. The things that we value are, gonna, are going to shape the lives of our children. Uh, there's actually a, a study done a few years ago that said the number one indicator of where children will actually grow up, to, to who grew up in the church, will actually stay in the church when they grow up. It's whether they were in worship or not. In the worship service. It wasn't, was there a great youth program? It wasn't Did they have great children's ministry? It wasn't any of that. It was, were they actually in the worship service? And were they learning to to love and to worship the Lord? And so this, this matters because God is a jealous God and what we worship as parents has an effect on our children who come after us. Now, I got one more why, but I'm going to save it. I want to ask the question now. Okay, how do we apply this today? Okay, how how do we think through this today? One is it has an application for for this, an application for what we do together when we gather on the Lord's Day to worship God. Now, let me. I want to read one of the texts to kind of tie in with this, and this is from Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And so you take what's being said there in Leviticus and and you take the second commandment and and you come up with this idea, and it's this, God decides how he wants to be worshipped. God decides how he wants to be worshipped. We're not free to make this up as we go along and just do whatever we want to in here and say, well, I like that, so I'm going to call that worship, and and God must like that too. Think about it like this. If you're in charge of planning your parents' 50th wedding anniversary party, and let's say you're in charge of the playlist, are you going to put Drake on that playlist? Will, Will. Okay, well, it will be fun. Are you... I might enjoy that. Are you going to put Drake on the playlist or are you going to put the Beatles or Peter, Paul, and Mary or whoever they were listening to in 1968, right? Who are you going to put on that playlist? You're not making that playlist for you. The point of the party is not to honor you. The point of the party is to honor your parents. And so you're going to try to go, okay, what are they like? How am I going to do this in a way that brings them joy and is, is pleasing to them? And so when we come together for worship we have to remember this is this is God's party so to speak we're trying to to please God and so we want to do things in worship that God has actually called us to do in worship in scripture we want worship to be shaped by the Bible and not by our individual personal preferences about what we think might not be going on here all right so um, one application we want to have biblical warrant for what we do in worship simple it's not always easy to apply but that's the basics we want want to have a biblical reasoning behind the things that we do in worship we want to do things that God tells us to do secondly uh, we don't use images in worship why don't we use pictures of Jesus or whatever in worship because God has specifically told us in the second commandment not to do that he says I don't don't want you to worship me in that way you might find it helpful I don't find it pleasing So, so God tells us not to do that A third application, I think, would be for us to remember that this is about God. That this hour and a half, whatever this is every Sunday morning, is about God. Now, I'm going to qualify that. Uh, That it's not an excuse for us to do bad, boring worship that nobody likes. Um, and you know that's that God hasn't given us God hasn't told us whether He likes Drake or the Beatles better. better. So there's not like a, a song list for us. So we have to we have to think through those sort of things. And we yes we want worship to be uh, edifying spiritually and emotionally to the people who are here. That that's that's part of what ought to be happening in worship. So okay, it's about God. Uh, I qualified that a little bit, but. I can't help but thinking in our very consumer-oriented culture, and I'll just say this is true for me. You can decide whether it's true for you. I can tend to spend much more time thinking about what kind of experience I get out of worship than I do thinking about the God whom I worship. Like, did I like this? Did I like that? Did I like the other? Instead of seeing this as a time to think about the God who I have come to worship. Uh, Annie Dillard said this, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. And so I, I think this, the second commandment kind of reminds us to kind of check ourselves for a minute. Yes, we want to, we want to enjoy what we do here. But I also have to remember that this is, this is about God coming here to worship God, to try to please Him and praise Him in ways that He's called me to do that. Now, secondly, um, and this might be a little more practical for us. I think the heart of this commandment is that we're not allowed to get creative in how we think about God. Where did those physical images that people created, where did those start? They started with mental images. They started them with them thinking about God in a certain way and then deciding to represent Him in that block of wood. And God is saying, look, I want you to actually worship the real me, not who you imagine me to be. Uh, J.I. Packer has said, the second commandment um, means anything that begins with I like to think of God as should never be trusted. Anytime you hear somebody say, I like to think of God as, you're saying, you saying, you should never trust that. And you think about how many times you've heard that said, and maybe you've said that yourself, but, but God is diametrically opposed to our culture on this issue. B- because how many times, again, I, I don't like to think of God in that way. I don't, I don't prefer to think of God in that way. I don't, I don't know if I can believe in a God who allows suffering. I prefer not to think of a God who might actually send people to hell. I, I prefer to think of God as... And it's like God is kind of this can of Plato, and, and we just get to think of God however we want to and design our own God into whatever we want Him to be. And God is saying, you, you absolutely can't do that. You can't just think of me however you want to think of me because it makes you feel better. You can't just create your own personal image of God. You have to think of me as I reveal myself to you. Now, I said there was one more why this matters. Here's why this matters. When we ignore that, and when we think about God in the wrong way, it's actually destructive to us. Um, and, and let me give you an example of this. Think about how it affects your relationships with other people when you basically say to them, oh, well, I prefer to think of you as this when that's not really who they are. Like if, if Matt Patrick came to me and said, Justin, I, I can't sing. and I, no, I'm, I don't know if you can sing or not. But if Matt, if Matt came to me and said, Justin, I, I can't sing, I would prefer not to help out with the leading singing part of worship I love doing the other stuff. Let me do the other stuff. And I said, Matt, you're wrong. I, I, you, you are the, the best tenor that RUF has ever produced. And we are going to put you over here and you're going to solo lead worship every week. Like that would just like that would mess everything up, right? That, because Matt is one way, and I'm saying, no, I prefer to think of you this way. Or uh, Tim Keller, some of you remember the, the book on marriage, he, he talks about it this way. He says, that we all actually, what we do is we marry mental images of what we think our spouses are like, right? like, oh yeah, they're, they're like this. And then he says you get five years into the marriage and you realize that they don't fit the image that you've created for them. Like, oh, I thought they were this, this, and this. And now I'm realizing they're actually that, that, and that. And at that point, you can live in denial of that you can try to force them to be who you want them to be, who you prefer them to be, and wreck the marriage, or we can adjust our image of our spouse to who they actually are. If we don't adjust our image of God to who He actually is, it creates all kinds of distortions in our lives. Let me give you a few examples, and all these aren't original to me, but if you're, if you're angry all the time, if, if you fly off the handle every time something doesn't go your way it may be that you're viewing God as a genie in a bottle or as your personal assistant who is supposed to make your life run well all the time and you're you're mad that it is not running well right now uh, if you're insecure in your relationships with other people and you're Always driven to prove yourself. You're always driven to, to get the applause of the people around you. You may be someone who views God as this God who's always evaluating you. Always writing you up. And so you have to prove yourself to God. You have to prove yourself to everybody else. If you are find yourself being judgmental and condescending towards people who struggle with sins that you don't really struggle with, it may be that you see God as just this giver of the rules and you've got to again you've just got to keep the rules and these other people need to get it together like you need to get it together if you are never able to rest if you're ne- never able to stop it may be that you've begun to think of God as a God who only helps those who help <coughs> themselves um, maybe you are um, maybe you've got an ongoing sin in your life that you just got kind of comfortable with And you're really not trying to do battle with it. Maybe you begin to view God as just this grandfatherly God. He isn't going to tell mom. He isn't really worried about this sin in your life. We're not allowed to imagine God in the way we want to imagine Him. If we do, it creates all kinds of problems in our lives. We have to submit ourselves to God as He reveals Himself to us. Now... Where has He done that? Where has God revealed Himself to us? We've well, done that in the Scripture, in the written Word, but He's also done that in the living Word. He's also done that in Jesus Christ. Now, the Colossians text says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We're not to make images, but God has given us an image. Verse 19, nineteen: In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, Hebrews chapter one: The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Uh, John one eighteen: uh, We're told that Jesus has made not God. We cannot see God, but Jesus has made God known to us. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, "If you've seen me, you have seen the Father." You have seen God. We don't get to make images of God, but God has given us an image. He has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we want to to see God, if we want to know what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. And the more we look at Jesus, the less distorted and the more human our lives actually become. So, So if you are struggling with the suffering and the hardship of life. We have to look to Jesus, who even though he was perfectly obedient to the Father, he still suffered. And he still died. Why? He went through through death for us so that one day our death and suffering would be done with. That, that this points us to this God who loves us enough to enter into our suffering even when we don't understand it. If you are uh, insecure, if you're feeling insecure about your relationships with other people, we have to look at Jesus who came and What did He do? He didn't say, line up and perform and let me decide who's the best performer. He loved the outcasts of society. He, he performed for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us and now He welcomes the outcasts into into His family and to His Father's table. If you're not taking sin very seriously, then perhaps you need to look at Jesus who hung on the cross because God takes sin so seriously if you're struggling to rest perhaps you need to look at Jesus who sat down and said it's, it's finished it's done and oh by the way here's this day I'm going to give you every week where you can rest and you can celebrate the fact that it is finished you can stop and you can lay your deadly doing down and you can rest in the fact that I've already done it Tim Keller tells the story of a man who his wife would go out of town most weekends and spend the weekend with her mother and he uh, started seeing a mistress and he would bring this mistress into his house. But when he would bring the mistress into his house, he would have to take all the pictures of his wife and he would have to turn them face down. Because she was always looking at him lovingly in all of those pictures and he couldn't be with his mistress when his wife was looking at him so lovingly. I I don't know what your idea of God is this morning, but the invitation this morning is to turn away from your false images of God and redraw the picture. And the invitation is to, to turn away from your mistresses, and maybe you've been taking the picture of Jesus and laying it down on the table, and to, to pick that up metaphorically. And to look to Jesus Christ, the one true image of God, who loves you. And in looking to Jesus, become like Him and be changed by Him. That's an invitation to you this morning it's to look away from your mistresses, look away from your false conceptions of God, and look to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Father, um, if we're honest, we do... I have to admit we have a habit of trying to to make you into the god we want you to be uh, instead of the god that you've revealed yourself to be and so i um, i pray this morning that you would help us to see that jesus is a better image uh, jesus is the one who loves us uh, jesus is the one who hung on the cross and died for us none of our other mistresses Do that. None of our other mistresses really love us, uh, but Jesus has. And so help us to see Jesus, the true representation of who you are. And in seeing him, be changed by him. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to go to the Lord's uh, table now. Let me read the the words of institution for us. You find these in your bulletin, they're from Matthew 26. Uh, The Lord Himself has given us an image this morning. He he hasn't given us a picture of Himself. We don't set a picture of Jesus on the table and come up here and bow before it. But He has given us bread and wine. He's given us enacted drama, as it were, that He tells us to do. Uh, he, He gives us this to point us to what Jesus has done in dying for us and shedding His blood for us on the cross. And so we come to this every week and this reminds us of who Jesus is. It reminds us of how serious our sin is, but it reminds us that Jesus' grace is much bigger and that He loves us and He welcomes us to the table. Uh, if you're not sure you believe that, that's still kind of rattling around in your head, uh, then I would encourage you to take this time during the Lord's Supper. There's some, some prayers in the bulletin that might be encouraging to you. Uh, if, if, for those who are searching for truth, or perhaps you've believed this for the first time, that you've recognized that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that He is the Savior that you need. There's a prayer of belief that you might pray. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ now, then I invite you to come up and commune with Him and be encouraged and strengthened by Him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank You that um, You have given us a a drama to reenact here, uh, that You have uh, given us uh, a visual display of what you have done for us. Uh, so I pray that you would use it now. Uh, I pray that you would help us to taste and to see that you're good, uh, to understand that our sin is serious, but to understand also that your uh, work on the cross has taken away it all. And help, us, help us help us, to believe that and to rest and to believe that it is finished this morning. pray in your name. Amen.